0: Way back in episode 42, I talked about prairie dogs. And at the beginning of that episode, I said I had been planning to talk about some other animals too, before I discovered just how fascinating prairie dogs are. So now, inspired partly by the fact that I'm back in prairie dog country, I want to circle back and tell you about those other animals that live alongside prairie dogs, and in some cases, even depend on them for their survival. So today, we're talking about the three bees bears, beets, Battlestar Galactica. No, no, wait, that's not right. Burrowing owls, black-footed ferrets, and badgers. There we go. I'm your host, Tim the Naturener O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. So let's start with burrowing owls. Burrowing owls are small, long-legged owls found throughout open landscapes of both North and South America. Only slightly larger than an American robin, these little hooters are only 7 to 11 inches long. On a side note, that's 19 to 28 centimeters for my New Zealand listener or listeners. I have at least one according to Podbean statistics. And if you're listening to this episode in New Zealand, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. Okay, sorry, back to the owls. The wingspan of burrowing owls is 20 to 24 inches, and they max out in weight at a paltry half a pound. Adults have brown heads and wings and white spotting, bright eyes, and gray or dark yellow beaks. They don't have plumicorns, which are the feather tufts some owls have that look like ears, and they have flattened facial discs with prominent white eyebrows that kind of make them look like they're constantly judging you. They also have a white chin patch that they expand and display during certain behaviors, like when they're agitated. Burrowing owls generally hunt by waiting on a perch and then swooping down on their prey, but their relatively long legs help them sprint after prey too, a behavior that's not seen in most other owls. Also unlike most other owls, burrowing owls are often active during the day, although they tend to avoid the midday heat. On the other hand, like many other owls, Burrowing owls do most of their hunting at dusk and dawn, when their night vision and hearing give them an advantage. These owls have a highly variable diet, but primarily they eat large insects and small rodents. They're also known to prey on other birds, reptiles, amphibians, and even bats. Now, even though they live in close proximity to ground squirrels and prairie dogs, these species are generally too big for the diminutive burrowing owl to hunt. Burrowing owls can be found in grasslands, rangelands, agricultural areas, deserts, or any other open, dry area with low vegetation. In other words, the same type of habitat preferred by or created by prairie dogs. Now, as their name suggests, they nest and roost in burrows. But most subspecies of burrowing owl can't dig their own burrows, so they tend to rely on burrows dug by other animals, like ground squirrels and, again, prairie dogs. Now, as you might expect, this dependency means that within their range, there's a high correlation between the presence of burrowing animals like prairie dogs with the presence of burrowing owls. But this relationship works in both directions. The rate of decline of burrowing owls correlates with the rate of decline of prairie dogs. And prairie dogs are often considered pests and there are eradication programs put in place. But eliminating prairie dogs doesn't just reduce the number of burrows available for owl use. It forces the population of owls to be more concentrated, with more owls occupying fewer burrows. This in turn means that predators can more easily detect owls and potentially eliminate a large number all at once. In addition, prairie dogs and ground squirrels act as a buffer between owls and predators, saving the owl by becoming the target instead. But another benefit provided by prairie dogs in particular is that their alarm calls help alert burrowing owls if predators are nearby, giving the owls ample time to either hide or escape. Now burrowing owls nest in the spring, and pairs often gather in loose colonies. The female lays an egg every one to two days, with an average of nine eggs per clutch. She incubates the eggs for three to four weeks, during which time the male brings her food. After the eggs hatch and for the next one to three months, both parents will help feed the chicks. The chicks can start making short flights and will start leaving the nesting burrow at about four weeks after hatching. Now the nest burrow can be several yards long and is usually less than three feet deep, but the size will depend on whatever animal originally excavated it. Burrows tend to make numerous twists and turns with a mound of dirt at the entrance and an opening at least four to six inches wide. Interestingly, male burrowing owls are known for decorating the entrance to their burrows. During the nesting season, male owls will bring a wide variety of material to the burrow. Now, some of this material, like, say, grasses or feathers, are used for lining the nest. But researchers have documented burrows strewn with corn stalks, corn cobs, deer vertebrae, pieces of potatoes, pieces of concrete, discarded gloves, and swatches of fabric. They've even noted that the owls seem to prefer fabric colored red, white, blue, and green in that order. But one of the most common things collected is mammal dung. In one case, the observer noted that a male had constructed a sort of airstrip, using 122 pieces of coyote scat. That's right, nothing says home sweet home like piling up a bunch of poop in your front yard. Now, obviously if they're bringing home bones and concrete, it's not just about making a comfortable nest. So what's the deal? Well, there's a couple of theories. As far as the poop goes, it used to be thought that this was to help mask the scent of the owls, especially juveniles from predators. But some researchers now think the dung serves two other functions. One, it may help control the microclimate inside the burrow, and two, it may help attract insects which the owls can then eat sort of like DoorDash for burrowing owls. But what about all the rest? Well, decorating the burrow entrance may be a way to advertise to other males that the burrow is occupied. The more decorations, the more obvious it is that the burrow is taken. While burrowing owls are highly correlated with prairie dogs, and while prairie dog control and eradication continues in many areas, It's encouraging to note that burrowing owls readily inhabit more urban landscapes like airport grasslands or golf courses, and they're known to take advantage of artificial nest sites and perches. Their reproductive success is similar in both rural and urban settings. In fact, some research suggests that burrowing owls have adapted to the rapid urbanization of their normal habitat. Urban burrowing owls have learned to dig their own burrows and exhibit different fear responses to humans and domestic dogs than their country cousins. Where the presence of burrowing owls conflicts with development interests, a passive relocation technique, where the owls are half enticed and half coerced into moving on their own, has been used successfully. This approach is usually more successful than capturing and relocating the owls, which can be stressful and prone to failure. Now the challenge with this method is that the preparations need to start several months before the anticipated disturbance, with observing the owl colony and noting their local movements and site preferences. After choosing a location nearby that has suitable ground and provides good breeding habitat for the owls, the new site needs to be enhanced by adding artificial burrows and perches. It's best if this is done in the spring before the breeding season starts. Now, once the owls have gotten used to the changes and they're interested in the new location, they're prevented from entering their old burrows using a simple one-way trap door design placed over the old burrow entrance. If everything's been correctly prepared, the owl colony will move over to the new site in the course of just a few nights at most, which just goes to show that in many cases, humans and wildlife can coexist with just a little bit of effort on the humans' part. Now let's turn our attention to the black-footed ferret, an animal that's even more dependent on prairie dogs than burrowing owls are. You probably know what a ferret looks like. Long, slender body, short stout legs, triangular ears, and short whiskers. They're about two feet long, including their four and a half to five inch tail, and they max out at about three pounds. A black-footed ferret's fur is yellowish or tan, with black-tipped hairs on the top of the head, the neck, and the back. The face is crossed by a broad band of black, including the eyes, giving it a mask-like appearance a little bit like a raccoon. Not surprisingly, the lower legs and feet, hence the name along with the tip of the tail, are also black. The feet, including the soles of the feet, are covered in fur and that conceals their sharp claws. Now black-footed ferrets need prairie dogs. No prairie dogs, no black-footed ferrets. It's that simple. Why, you ask? Well, because 90% of a black-footed ferret's diet is prairie dogs. The remaining 10% is mostly rodents and rabbits. That makes it easy to see how prairie dog eradication impacts black-footed ferrets. From the 1800s to the 1900s, black-footed ferret numbers declined steeply, mostly thanks to prairie dog eradication and the conversion of their habitat to cropland. Various diseases that infect both prairie dogs and ferrets also contributed to their decline. In fact, black-footed ferrets were declared extinct in 1979. But just three years later, in 1981, a remnant population was discovered in Matitsi, Wyoming, by a ranch dog named Shep. Shep brought a dead ferret to his owners, who in turn took it to a taxidermist, who informed them of the importance of Shep's discovery. Now, since we don't know Shep's role in the demise of the ferret, and since it was an important discovery, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, good boy, Shep. Biologists began monitoring this population of black-footed ferrets, which eventually grew to 130 individuals, but it was nearly wiped out for real this time by plague and canine distemper, falling to just 18 ferrets. These 18 were captured between 1985 and 1987 for use in a captive breeding program using artificial insemination. Seven were able to produce offspring. Black-footed ferrets were reintroduced into the wild in 1991, and since then over 5,500 have been released in various sites. In 2007, the wild population was estimated at 650, and in 2013 that number was 1,200. But, even in ideal conditions, life expectancy for a wild ferret is just one to five years, averaging closer to one. And between predators, disease, and human stuff, there's estimated to be just two to three hundred in the wild currently. It doesn't help that black-footed ferrets and prairie dogs are caught between contradictory mandates of two different government agencies. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is charged with the conservation and reintroduction of black-footed ferrets, and the U.S. Forest Service, which is charged with controlling prairie dog populations. Now, a more recent scientific breakthrough may help bring black-footed ferrets back, and that's cloning. In 2020, scientists from the San Diego Zoo, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and several other conservation groups were able to successfully clone a female ferret named Willa who died in the mid-80s with no descendants. Born December 10th, 2020, and named Elizabeth Ann, she's the first North American endangered species to be cloned. Scientists hope that Elizabeth Ann's contribution to the black-footed ferret gene pool will help alleviate the effects of inbreeding and help black-footed ferrets better cope with plague. It's estimated that Elizabeth Ann's genome contains three times as much genetic diversity as any modern black-footed ferret's. Okay, last, but certainly not least, I want to tell you about the American badger. Badgers are found in the same type of habitat as prairie dogs, and therefore, of course, black-footed ferrets and burrowing owls. And they're in the same family as black-footed ferrets. But they're not dependent on prairie dogs to the degree that ferrets and owls are. I've seen several badgers in the wild, in a prairie dog town at Soapstone Prairie Natural Area, just south of Cheyenne over the Colorado border. In fact, I once accidentally chased one down the trail on my mountain bike. I'm not sure which one of us was more surprised, to be honest. Badgers are pretty easy to identify. With the exception of the head, American badgers are covered with a grizzled brown, black, and white coat of coarse fur, giving them kind of a mixed brownish tan look. This color helps provide camouflage in grassland habitats. Their triangular face shows a distinctive black and white pattern with brown or blackish badges marking the cheeks and a white stripe that runs from the nose to the base of the head. Adults are two to two and a half feet long and weigh an average of 18 pounds. They're stocky, low slung and have short, powerful legs that end in claws that can be up to two inches long. American Badgers are fossorial, meaning that they're adapted to digging and spending most of their time underground. Now, just for reference, other fossorial animals are things like groundhogs, ground squirrels, and, of course, prairie dogs and black-footed ferrets. Some of the adaptations that make badgers fossorial specialists are nictitating membranes, which is a transparent third eyelid that protects their eyes when they're digging, a conical head, bristles on the ears, again to keep out dirt and debris, and specialized bone structures where their muscles attach that give them a mechanical advantage for digging. Like prairie dogs, the American badger's habitat is open grassland where it can find prey. They range from central Mexico through most of the central and western United States, including the Great Lakes region, and north into south-central Canada. Being fossorial, badgers prefer areas like prairies with sandy loam soils or deserts where they can dig more easily for prey. American badgers are generally nocturnal, but in remote areas with little human disturbance, it's not that unusual to see them out foraging during the day. The ones I've seen have been out during daylight hours. From late March to early May, a badger out during the day is usually a female, foraging during the day and then spending the night with her young. Badgers don't hibernate in the winter, but they may become less active. A badger might spend much of the winter in cycles of torpor that last up to 29 hours. They'll emerge from their burrows to forage when the temperature is above freezing. Now, badgers are primarily carnivorous, though they're also known to eat some plants like corn, peas, green beans, mushrooms, and sunflower seeds. But mostly they prey on other fossorial animals like prairie dogs, gophers, ground squirrels, mice, and rats, often digging their prey out of its den and sometimes even plugging tunnel entrances with objects to prevent the prey from escaping. They're also known to prey on ground nesting birds, including burrowing owls, along with lizards, skunks, amphibians, insects, including bees and honeycomb, fish, carrion, and snakes. In fact, American badgers are a significant predator of rattlesnakes, and at least in South Dakota, they're considered to be the most significant predator of rattlesnakes. American badgers don't usually construct their own burrow from scratch. Normally, they'll enlarge a burrow created by another animal maybe even one they've just eaten. Dens range from four to 10 feet deep and four to six feet wide. The soil that's dug out will usually be at the entrance of the burrow and it will have a mound-like appearance over the living space. During the summer and fall, badgers range more frequently. A badger might dig up to three burrows from foraged out prey holes in a single day, use them for anywhere from a day to a week, and then leave with the possibility of returning later but in the meantime, other animals might take up occupancy. I'm guessing the badger doesn't mind having someone move in because if they return to that den, it just means they might have dinner waiting. Dens tend to be reused where prey is particularly plentiful, especially in the fall. In the winter, a single den is generally used for most of the season. Natal dens are dug by the female and tend to be used for extended periods. A female badger might have anywhere from two to four burrows close together and connected by tunnels for the concealment and safety of her young. Litters might be moved between dens, probably to allow the mother to forage in new areas close by. Natal dens are usually larger and more complex than the more temporary summer dens. Now, badgers are generally solitary, but they expand their territories during the breeding season to find a mate. Mating occurs in the late summer or early fall, and usually males will mate with more than one female. But while mating happens in the late summer, American badgers experience what's called delayed implantation, and the pregnancy doesn't actually start until December or later. Young, called cubs, are usually born in the early spring. Litters can range from one to five, but the average litter size is three. Now, kind of like puppies or kittens, badger cubs are born furred, but blind and helpless. Their eyes open at four to six weeks old, and they'll first emerge from the den shortly after that. Before weaning them and for a few weeks after, the mother will feed the cubs solid food. Juvenile badgers leave their mother and disperse anywhere between late May and August. Badgers are known for being aggressive, and they have few natural enemies, but they're subject to being preyed on by other large carnivores, including golden eagles, coyotes, wolves, bobcats, and cougars. Badgers are sometimes trapped for humans for their pelt, and their coarse fur was traditionally used in shaving and brushes. Average lifespan in the wild is 9 to 10 years. One last fun fact about American badgers, and this is by far my favorite thing about them, maybe even one of my favorite things in all of nature. While coyotes may sometimes prey on badgers, badgers and coyotes are known to team up and go hunting together. And this is not a new discovery. This relationship appears in a lot of Native American mythologies. The partnership works because of the different hunting styles of the predators and how prey reacts to each of them. For example, when a ground squirrel spots a coyote, it flees into its hole to escape. But when it sees a badger, the ground squirrel leaves its hole using its speed to outrun the slower badger. Hunting in tandem increases the vulnerability of the prey, and both the coyote and the badger win. Researchers have found that coyotes working with a badger have an increased catch rate of about 33%. Now, it used to be thought that this was something of an uneasy partnership, purely transactional, but there's evidence to suggest that these relationships are more, well, friendly than that. A video captured in California's Santa Cruz Mountains shows a coyote and a badger traveling together near a culvert under a highway. The coyote waits for the badger to catch up to it before entering the tunnel, bowing down, wagging its tail in excitement, and pouncing playfully like a puppy at the dog park. The badger appears to be very relaxed. It lifts its tail to speed up a bit before following the coyote into the tunnel. Now, I try to be careful about assigning human emotions and motivations to wild animals, but the body language of these two predators is that of friends, or at the very least, familiarity. They seem to know each other, where they're going, and what they're on their way to do together. And on that happy note, we bring this episode to an end. Thank you for listening. Remember to leave me a like and follow the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. I promise it won't cost you a thing. Other things you can do to support the podcast, tell someone else to listen to, and then discuss amongst yourself. Your favorite bartender, mechanic, your cellmate, Uber driver, proctologist, it doesn't matter to me, just tell them to give it a listen. Check out our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do it through PayPal forest at gmail.com is my PayPal address, and also how you can contact me if you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, or if you're listening from New Zealand. Seriously, New Zealand, I want to hear from you. Go get some Dispatches from the Forest merchandise, maybe a gift for your proctologist. I mean, he's earned it. The Dispatches from the Forest merch store can be found at cafepress.com forward slash dispatchesfromtheforest. There's all kinds of stuff there. I'm sure you'll find something that strikes your fancy. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast, whole or in part, without express written permission. Question. What kind of bear is best? That's a ridiculous question. False. Black bear. Well, that's debatable. There are basically two schools of thought. Fact. Bears eat beets. Bears. Beets. Battlestar Galactica. Bears do not... What is going on? What are you doing?